0: Let's pray once more. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power to transform our minds and our hearts and our lives. And we pray that you would take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and wield it mightily for our encouragement and instruction and hope this morning. We want to pray for help. As we listen, as we engage with your word, this is not a passive act you are speaking. We pray that your servants, your children would be listening this morning and eager to enter in, praying over all that we are contemplating this morning, believing all that you have promised, pledging ourselves afresh to you this morning as you speak to us. Help us, help me. There's nothing that I can say that will be of any benefit apart from the enabling power of your Holy Spirit, so I place myself in your strong and capable hands. Pray that you would forgive and cleanse me from all my unrighteousness and that you would uh, give us a word this morning that would um, lift up the heart and relieve burdens and give and impart hope and faith and grant us renewed perspective on your goodness and grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well... It ends on a bit of a sad note, doesn't it? The story of Joseph is one of the most amazing stories in the entire Bible. And Genesis has no more noble character in it, in the entire book, all 50 chapters, than this man we spent several weeks with these past couple of months. If you remember in the beginning of the book of Genesis, you have God creating the world, and then soon after that, in Genesis chapter 3, Human beings spoil it, Adam and Eve sin, and bring sin and death and the curse into the world. But God makes a pledge and a promise in the midst of that judgment that there will come a son who will reverse all of this. And so Genesis leads with that hope throughout the entire book, and it pulses with, who is this one who will come? And we meet a man named Noah, and Noah isn't that one. And we meet a man named Abraham, and Abraham isn't that one. And we meet a man named Isaac, and Isaac isn't that one. And we meet a man named Jacob, and Jacob isn't that one. And we meet a man named Jeff, and we say, that's the one. If there's any one that is going to come who is this full of righteousness, this full of integrity, this full of trusting God, this full of love, this full of God's presence, surely this is the one. Nope. Coffin. In Egypt, embalmed, 110 years old. And that's sad. Who is going to come? If not him, then who? I mean, surely this man lived the life of love that God commends. Is that not the greatest life that could be lived? According to Jesus, it is. Let me give you some text about what signifies a life well lived, and Joseph. Had it in spades. Mark chapter 12 verses 30 and 31. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself and no other commandment greater than these. Surely Joseph loved the Lord like that. John chapter 13 verses 34 and 35 remind us that a new command I give you. You shall love one another. As I have loved you, all men will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. That's the sterling mark of God's people. Romans chapter 13 verse 8. No, oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. It's what the whole law's about. It's what the whole law's after. Loving other people. First Corinthians 13 one through three. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, Paul says, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give up all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is everything. 1 Corinthians thirteen thirteen: faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these is love. 1 Corinthians sixteen four: Paul tells the church, let all that you do, Be done in love. Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Colossians chapter 3, just two more. Colossians chapter 3, verse 14. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Finally, 1 Timothy 1 5, the aim of our charge is love. It's what the apostles are after, love. just want to create loving people that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So if love is what God's after, surely we see it in Joseph's life, and, but yet he's not the one. More on that to come. But for now, let's spend some time in Genesis 50 looking at how Joseph did love. Because there's three people he loves really, really well in this chapter. The first one in the first 14 verses is his dad. The second are his brothers, so that's more than one people person, but a group of people are his brothers. And the third is his God. He loves those three well, and so that's what we're going to look at this morning. So let's first start with Joseph's honoring love for his father in the first 14 verses. Now, Jacob had a request of Joseph on his deathbed. You remember, if you have your Bible open or your app open, just look back at Genesis 49, the previous chapter, the chapter we considered last week, and let's look at Jacob's request to Joseph in verses 29 through 32. He says, then he commanded them, talking to all the brothers, but having just concluded by talking to Joseph primarily, and he said to them, I am to be gathered to my people, bury me, with my fathers in the cave that's in the field of Ephraim the Hittite, in the cave that's in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephraim the Hittite to possess as a bearing place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife, there they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife, and there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. So that's His request, and then we see in verse 33 that Jacob dies. So he's asking his sons to bury him where his grandfather and his father are buried in the land of promise. And we see Joseph do exactly that. His dad's not around anymore. He didn't have to do what his dad said, but he loved and he honored his father. And he did exactly according to what his dad requested. And Moses, the writer of Genesis, takes pains to give us those details to tell us that he did exactly what his dad asked him to do. So just look at a couple verses in chapter 50. First of all, verse 5, when he's talking to Pharaoh, he says, Joseph says to him, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Then notice verses 11 and 12 as Joseph goes and fulfills Jacob's request. Verse 11, when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. There the place was named Abel Mizraim, it is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Mekpelah, to the east of the Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephraim the Hittite to possess as a bearing place. So he did exactly what his father asked him to do. And this is further evidence of what we've already seen with Joseph, his sterling integrity to do exactly what he says he will do, regardless of what it costs him. And this is something that is characteristic of Joseph throughout the story. We see Joseph's character and strength in the face of adversity again and again. When he's in Potiphar's house in chapter 39, and Potiphar's wife desires to sleep with him, he says, no, you're not mine. He has absolute integrity and refuses to do so, even though it sends him to jail under false accusation. And then, when he's with the prisoners in the jail, and they, give him the interpreta- they want the interpretation for their dreams, he doesn't bend the truth in hopes that it will serve him. He tells him exactly what God reveals to him as to the content of their dream, regardless of what advantage or disadvantage it gives to Joseph. He just lays it out. He says, I'm sorry, one of you guys is going to die. The other one isn't. That's what God has revealed in the dream. No spin, no manipulation, just telling the truth. And then his integrity to justly handle the effects of the famine and use his gifts of administration to save the world. He works hard for Pharaoh, earns great trust from the Pharaoh, even as we see in chapter 50 as he goes to bury Jacob. Pharaoh sends a large company with him and is giving him the time off to go take care of this. This is a significant expense. It's a significant expenditure of time. Pharaoh's glad to do it because he loves Joseph And Joseph has served him so faithfully with such great integrity for so many years. And so we see Joseph's honoring love for his father as he does what his father asked him to do, to go take him and bury him in the promised land with his father and his grandfather. So that's point number one, Joseph's honoring love for his father. Point number two, Joseph's forgiving love for his brothers. Joseph's forgiving love for his brothers. Now, he's buried his dad, and we pick up the story at verse 14. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, "Uh uh-oh. That's a red fern standard version. No uh uh-oh in there, but you can sense it in their hearts. There was an uh uh-oh there. Notice what they say in verse 15. It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. In other words, they say Joseph really only did what he did because dad was still alive. And he didn't want dad to die any sooner than he needed to. He didn't want to add grief to dad's heart. He really, all that while, was waiting to judge us and punish us and kill us. And now the time has come. Surely that was on their minds throughout the entire funeral. What's going to happen now that dad is dead? So, So verse 16, they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. I don't remember that. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers in their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Now, they are worried. They are fearing for their lives. They're wondering, is the grudge still alive? If there ever was a grudge. They're worried now about the appropriate, just recompense for their crimes, which started this whole situation to begin with, which sent Joseph into Egypt, sold as a slave, unjustly, by his brothers. Now, there is already evidence, if you remember in chapter 45, of Joseph's profound love and forgiveness of his brothers. Remember what he did? Let's look back at Genesis 45, when he finally reveals himself to his brothers because remember they don't know who he is at first, because they haven't seen him in 20 years, and he looks like an Egyptian. Genesis chapter 45 and verses 15 and 16, And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. So he, he didn't respond when he initially revealed himself. He didn't respond as though he wasn't inclined to forgive them. He didn't love them, but the brothers still think that. You know, before we get into his forgiveness and the way he deals with his brothers, I think we can learn a lot ourselves here about how God forgives us and how we tend to doubt it. Just like the brothers, we tend to doubt that God has really forgiven us. You know the feeling, don't you? You ever been there? If you're in Christ this morning, you've repented of sin, you are repenting of sin, you're believing in Jesus, you're holding to Him, you're walking with Him as His disciple, holding to Him as your exclusive hope for heaven, do you always feel like a child of God? Do you always feel like you've been forgiven even though God has pronounced that reality over your life? Do you sing a song like the love of God that we sang this morning and just say, Boy, it would be nice to kind of feel that way sometimes. I I don't feel that way. We too can doubt God's forgiveness. Much like Joseph's brothers, who were legitimately and fully forgiven by Joseph, we can question whether or not God really hates us and wants to pay us back. That really the gospel is some cloak for judgment. That really behind all this gospel promise is a God who is deeply disappointed, deeply angry, and deeply frustrated with you as his child. One whom he perpetually has to send discipline and trial to even keep you around. You're like a stepkid in the family of God. And you just don't feel like, I'm part of the family, I don't know. We can tend to doubt God's forgiveness as well. We can tend to think that Jesus doesn't really love us, that He just forgives us because the Father asked Him to, like the brothers say here. You see that? Verse 17, Say to Joseph, based upon what their father said, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. In other words, Joseph, we know you don't really want to forgive us, but you really love Dad, and he really loves you, so will you just forgive us because you love dad? That's how we can sometimes think about the gospel. That somehow Jesus is twisting the father's arm. He, he, Jesus loves us, but the father doesn't. And he's just, he's just twisting God's arm to get him to like us. Or vice versa. That the father really loves us, but Jesus doesn't. And he's just willing to do what the Father wants him to do and go die on the cross for this garbage can of humanity that he'd really rather send to complete hell forever, but he'll do it because he loves the Father and his glory and his honor. And do you know what thinking like that does to our greater Joseph, Jesus? Look at the end of verse 17. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. That kind of talk makes Jesus cry. John Owen says, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him is not to believe that he loves you. That's a Puritan who said that. That's not Joel Osteen, who you expect to say that. It's all he ever says. But the Puritans, the great ones who are gravely serious about God, who don't want you to move an inch lest you sin, so the caricature is. But John Owen, who's as Puritan as Puritan gets, says, you can't lay any greater burden on God than not to believe that he loves you. And then we see here the the brother's response to this again. Look at verse 18. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we're your servants. See, that's what we do too. We can tend to doubt God's forgiveness. We can tend to... Just think that Jesus really loves us, but the Father doesn't, or the Father really loves us, but Jesus doesn't. And then we just try to make a deal with God. I'll, I'll be your servant. I just, I'll just do what you say. I, I'll just, I pledge myself to do whatever you ask me to do. And so we receive the gospel as some sort of like divine payback plan. We're, we're, we're making a deal with God. You give me your grace and forgiveness, and I'll pay you back. I'll slide you some obedience and righteousness, and I'll be your servant. I'll become a preacher. Or I'll be a church member, a really good Christian. I'll do that. Listen, that's not the way it works. Listen, God doesn't want you doubting his love and forgiveness if you're in Christ. He doesn't want you questioning his love for you. He doesn't want you to make a deal with you or with him. He doesn't want you to be afraid. Look at what Joseph says in verse 21 to his brothers. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them And spoke kindly to them. Listen, believer, if you're in Christ, when you stand before God on the last day, He is going to meet you as the same tender Father that He's been all your entire life. He's going to lavish love on you, He's going to comfort you, He's going to speak kindly to you, because that's what He's doing right now. And that's what he's been doing ever since you became one of his. So why do I start there? Why do I spend all the time I just did, the last, what, five, ten minutes, talking about God's lavish forgiveness of us when this passage is dealing with Joseph's horizontal forgiveness of his brothers? Because, listen, you won't forgive people. They're heinous, wicked vile sins against you. You'll be eaten up with bitterness and hatred because you don't believe this. This is what releases and frees human hearts to freely forgive as they've been forgiven. When you meet a bitter person who is hard and angry and just feels like they've been dealt a bad hand by God and they don't love anybody, it's because they don't get the gospel. They're a deeply unbelieving person. That's the greater thing that should draw compassion from God's people is you are in a mess because you can't forgive. It's it's serious. It's, It's saying, I don't believe the gospel. And so why I spend so much time talking about God's great forgiveness and God's great love is to make us people who are forgiving. Because unless that grips our heart that God loves us so profoundly and has forgiven us so deeply and doesn't want us to doubt it and doesn't want us to barter with Him and wants us to enjoy and derive comfort from His love, we will only forgive others to the degree that we understand God's forgiveness. And so, that's why I spend time talking about this. Because before this passage teaches us about how we're to forgive each other, It teaches us first about how God forgives us. Because God's character, and especially Jesus' character, is mirrored in Joseph's actions. You see how Joseph treats his brothers? This is how our greater Joseph treats us. And that's the first lesson we learn. But from that, we can now learn horizontal forgiveness. So we've grasped the vertical... And now we move into the horizontal. Look at how Joseph was able to forgive his brothers. I got three quick things here. First of all, he held no bitterness. There was no bitterness whatsoever. How can I say that? Text doesn't say that. Because he cries. And he's not crying a self-pity cry. He's crying because they are so distressed about his forgiveness of them. That's a person who's healed up. That's an emotionally healthy, spiritually mature person who's not thinking, yeah, dad's dead. Bring out the firearms, as if there were in those days. Bring out the crossbows. Bring out the arrows. Let's kill these guys right here because I've been waiting decades to get them back. Oh, are they going to get it now? Vengeful. Eating up. No, there's nothing, we don't see any of that. We see zero bitterness, and he hasn't had any bitterness for decades. Because remember, he named his kids, who are now in their 20s, Ephraim and Manasseh. says, God's made me forget all the hardship, and I'm looking forward to the future. So he names his kids that. Because that's reflective of what's going on in his soul. I mean, there is no one who's crying more than Joseph. Joseph's crying every chapter. Chapter 42, verse 24. Chapter 43, verse 30. Chapter 45, verse 2. Chapter 46, verse 29. Chapter 50, verse 1. Chapter 50, verse 17. Joseph's crying. Joseph's crying. Why? Because he loves. He loves his brothers. He loves His Father, He wants to be reconciled with them, and He doesn't have any bitterness about it. Have you ever shed tears over other people's hurt related to the freeness of your forgiveness toward them? I mean, that's the model. Not, I just don't want them to die in a car accident, but maybe break a leg. That'd be okay. Okay. You know, that's where we are a lot of times, right? Secret deep down. Can we talk about that in church? Deep down, you really do kind of want a little bit of payback? Just a little. Just some Christian payback. You know, I don't want them to die or anything, but maybe get a head cold for 20 years. Just that perpetual, ongoing, nagging thing that you'd rather die than have, you know? Maybe it's just me and my sinuses. But see, you've got this picture, no bitterness, none. He's left it all. He's healed up. He's fine. And number two, he knows his place. He knows his place. Look at verse 19. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? What's that mean? Listen, God is the one who judges, ultimately, who renders an unforgiveness or, unforgiveness or unforgiveness verdict. God is the one who ultimately makes recompense for sin. Joseph's not God. So Joseph steps out of the seat of judgment. He gets down, and he washes his brother's feet. Because by doing so, you heap burning coals on their head. That's your judgment. That's the way you judge people. You don't judge them. You love them with kindness. Listen, when we choose to not forgive others, we are telling Jesus, especially if they're a brother or sister in Christ, that he didn't pay enough for their sins. When you refuse to forgive a brother or sister in Christ, you're saying that Jesus' payment was insufficient and you need to extract some more. To refuse to forgive is to commit idolatry. And I'm not kidding. That's what it is. It is saying, I have the final word over God's. It's to put ourselves in the place of judgment. It's to put ourselves in the place of God. Vengeance does not belong to men. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. And when we try to rip it out of his hands, we're committing idolatry. Listen, God knew that it was not a good thing for him to put vengeance in the hands of men because we would do terrible things with it. We would do so much unrighteousness, it'd be ridiculous. People would be burning up in the streets. What'd they do? They walked on my grass. That's what people would do, right? I mean, we're nuts with vengeance. When If somebody cuts us off, good grief. God, they sighed, they came in without looking in their mirror, and they were texting while they were driving. <laughs> Kill them. That's the kind of stuff we think. Hey, you want to be scared? Let's, let's, let's have God record all of our thoughts for the last seven days and then put them right up here. Who's going to come to church next Sunday? We are wicked. We got sin, just a cesspool still living within us. And listen, here's the the point, is that God will take care of every sin committed against you, okay? Either on the cross, if they're your brother or sister, or in hell, if they're not. But all sin against you will be given its just recompense. Joseph knew that. Am I in the place of God? No. No. So I'm not going to withhold unforgiveness from you. So that's two, that's, those are two things. He held no bitterness. He knew his place. Number three, he trusted God's sovereignty. And this is, this is a beautiful thing. This is the, the pearl of the chapter that Larry referred to. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me. He tells him like it is. You wanted me dead. And that was wrong and evil. And you know it and God knows it. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. In other words, that the famine would be curbed back in its effectiveness to take away the lives of millions and millions of people because I was able to store the grain up and provide it as needed. I came up under God's leadership. I came up with the idea to preserve the the famine from being so catastrophic. Now, there's a lot of this, this verse, this Genesis chapter 50 verse 20 verse, is an amazing verse. It's a verse that will hold your entire life up. You can build your whole life on this because it's, it, it has an answer to everything that comes your way that is evil and wrong and how you're able to press through it. Because as Joseph said, we can say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Now, there's a couple errors that can come with this. One is the error of saying, well, all the good stuff comes from God, but God doesn't have anything to do with evil. God doesn't have anything to do with all that stuff. That's the devil. No, the devil is God's devil. Okay, that's what another writer says, God's devil. In other words, he didn't create. He created this angelic being that fell that wasn't his fault. God's not responsible or culpable for the, for the presence of evil. But nevertheless, he wields and uses evil for his good purpose. Read the book of Job. Okay? There's your homework assignment. That's the book. You can't read the book of Job and come out believing that. Satan has to ask permission from God to afflict Job because God controls him. Then, The second error is some will argue that, well, God really wants to do something about the bad stuff, but you know, He's so limited by the choices of people. Who's sovereign here? Who's in control? God or people? I sure hope it's not people. It's not biblically. God is absolutely sovereign powerful, all-knowing, working over and in and through all that these brothers are doing in such a way that his hands are clean and he's not guilty of any of it. But he is sovereign over it. Then there's another error, which is thankfully dying down these days, came out about 10 years ago called open theism, which the whole idea that, well, God didn't know this would happen. He's discovering history in the same way that we are. It's just unfolding and God's just trying to deal with it as it comes along. Hogwash. Unbiblical. Heresy. This is the truth. God knew and meant and intended all that happened in the life of Joseph. The brothers did what they did apart from any external coercion from God. And God did what he did freely as well, without any external coercion from men. That's what it means, they meant it for evil, God meant it for good. This is the doctrine of concurrence. It's an understanding of providence, the way God works in the world, and it says that what men do and what God do operates concurrently at the same time but for two totally different purposes and ends. God executes his eternal plan and decree through the agency of Joseph's brother's sinful, willing, free actions. They do exactly what they want to do, and God does exactly what he wants to do. He is not the author of evil, But he is sovereign in such a way that he works in and through evil to accomplish his good and glorious purposes. Praise his name. That is the God of the Bible. That is who he is. All glory to him. Because he is able to work in such a way that he can pick up a mess of human sin and depravity and bring great and glorious good out of it. This is the work of the cross. This is what God did when he put his son to death. Acts chapter 2, verse 23 and 24. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified. You're to blame. Talking to these men who literally did crucify him. He says, but he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This wasn't something they were doing just haphazardly. It was a part of God's plan. Acts chapter 4, verse 27, 28. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's our God. That's our God. And that's the hope of our lives, that we have a God like that. That's glorious. That's not a thing to be feared. That, get, that puts granite under our feet so that we can move through life knowing that there is a God higher than anything men can do. Anything. All right, number three, and quickly, we've got to get on to our next point. So we've seen God's honoring love for his father in verses 1 through 14, God, Joseph, Joseph's honoring love for his father, and then second, Joseph's forgiving love for his brothers in verses 15 through 21. And now number three, Joseph's trusting love for his God. Verses 22 through 26. And we see him coming to his death and the things that he says. Look in verse 24. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He's prophesying about the exodus, that they're going to They're in Egypt now, but they're going to be taken up. This is going to be 400 years later. They're going to be taken out of Egypt back into the land of Canaan. And he he says, don't leave my bones here. All right? This is a guy who's living by faith, by a trusting love for God that's looking beyond, much like Jacob did, beyond the grave to the future that God has for his people. And, and with this act, with these words, Joseph gets memorialized in Hebrews 11 in the Hall of Faith. Because the one act that the writer to the Hebrews pulls out of the life of Joseph, among many acts that could be chosen that demonstrate his faith, it's this one. And here's what Hebrews 11.22 says, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus... Of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. (laughs) That's the act of faith, but that's the capstone of a life that trusted in God's love. And so let me conclude here by coming back to where we were at the beginning. Joseph's still dead, he dies. The story ends in sadness. Joseph is not the Savior. But there is one whose life did not end like this, who was not left embalmed in a coffin in Egypt, but left a grave in Jerusalem empty. And that's the one who conquered death, the greater Joseph, the true Son of God, the true Savior, Jesus, whose life is patterned after Joseph's life. Joseph is a beloved son who suffers in exile before being exalted to bless the nations. And the rest of the Old Testament continues this trajectory as other characters like David and Daniel and Esther begin to repeat the pattern. And furthermore, the life of Joseph is the story of Israel. Think about it. A general pattern in the Old Testament is that God makes Israel, as well as individuals, go through exile, misery, and even death before displaying his glory through saving them. Joseph's experience is Israel's experience that it's getting ready to live. He went ahead as a forerunner and lived at first. And now Israel's going to follow behind and live in exile under slavery for 400 years, recapitulating the life of Joseph. And but more than even being a type of Israel, Joseph is a type of Jesus. Jesus left heaven to be exiled on earth so that he might bear our misery and death on the cross, only to be raised from the dead and exalted for our salvation. Jesus is the Father's beloved Son, just like Joseph was. Jesus is a shepherd, just like Joseph was. Jesus was hated and despised by his brothers, just like Joseph was. Jesus faced fierce temptation and overcame, just like Joseph did. Jesus was stripped of his royal coat, just like Joseph was. Jesus was betrayed for the price of a common slave, just like Joseph was. Jesus was falsely accused and arrested, just like Joseph was. Jesus was sent into the hands of law keepers or law breakers, but the the, the government officials, and was crucified in his own form of prison between two people just like Joseph was. And one of those prisoners was saved, and one of them was lost, just like the prisoners in Joseph's story. Jesus' suffering led to the salvation of the world, just like Joseph's suffering did. And Jesus was exalted to, to save his brothers, just like jo- Joseph was exalted to save his. And so we, as his disciples, follow in his footsteps. We're, gonna be, we're living in exile now. Now. We are redeemed, but we're looking forward to the promised land. We will all die, but if we're trusting in Christ, we'll be saved and brought in to the glorious presence of our God. Listen, and with this I conclude. The goal of this sermon and this entire sermon series, the last several months through the life of Joseph, is not to call us to be like Joseph so we will hope in ourselves. The goal of this current sermon series is to show you the much better Joseph who has already come and lived so that we will hope in him. I start many things I don't finish. Unlike Joseph who maintained commitments with great integrity, I break promises, but Jesus never does. Everything he begins, he completes. And when he cried from the cross, it is finished, he meant it. There is nothing more we need for our salvation than what He has already graciously and freely provided. I tend to forget important truths. Joseph remembered God's sovereignty. But you know what? He died. But I quickly forget about God's sovereignty and many of my days are frittered away in low-grade anxiety and fear and unbelief. But even though I forget Jesus, He never forgets me. And He doesn't forget you. He remembers us. Our names are graven on the palms of His hands. We give up far too easily on people. We are not like Joseph, who bore with his brothers and did not justly punish him. If I were Jesus, I would have given up on me a long time ago. Even though I give up on people, Jesus never gives up on us. He saved us while we were enemies. How much more, now that we are reconciled, will we be saved through him? We are reconciled friends and sons and daughters of God, and He will save us completely. He's able to bear gently with us because He knows what it means to be beset with weakness. He remembers our frame. He knows that we're dust. I tend to withhold mercy from those I declare unworthy. But how grateful we should be that our greater Joseph Jesus only gives His mercy to the unworthy because there are no others. Or unworthiness makes us candidates for free grace. How grateful we should be then that when we were squirming in our blood, He cried across our dead and dry hearts, Live! And we came to life. He peered into the dead graves of our hearts and called our names so that we came running. We should thank God that He's not like us. Thank God that we don't have to be like Joseph. Thank God that the point of Joseph is to point forward to the greater Joseph who is our Savior, so that once His love and power touches our life, we are made new and willing to obey Him, growing progressively to honor our Father in heaven by dependent trust in Him in life and in death, having received such forgiveness like Joseph's guilty brothers. So I want to leave these three sentences ringing in our ears as we sing Happy Trails to Genesis 37 through 50. We are Joseph's guilty brothers brothers number one number two we like jacob and joseph will all die and number three jesus is our greater joseph who conquered the grave and will bring us home safely to god if we are trusting in him let's pray Father, thank you so much for the time we've gotten to spend these last several months contemplating the life of your servant, Joseph. We thank you that right now he is gathered in your presence with all the saints who have gone before us, worshiping the the lion of the tribe of Judah, his brother, his elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for sending Jesus in fulfillment of your promise so that now we look and read the story of Joseph differently because we see a man who was not left in Egypt and did not have to have his bones carried into the promised land. But when those women went into the tomb on Resurrection Sunday, they saw no trace that any person had ever been in there. And that's because, Lord Jesus, you conquered death and the grave. And there will never be anyone who can identify a stitch that you were even here on the earth because you were raised from the dead and you now live in the presence of God to make intercession for your people that we might be brought safely home all the while under your marvelous grace forgiving our sin and redeeming us by your blood. So we stand now to sing and worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.